0: Got a quick announcement to make right now. A month ago, I had planned on getting my haircut, and I was going to coincide it with Samson, okay? But gummit didn't happen, okay? Had to cancel, and then because I had extended COVID and all that, and then two weeks ago, I got it planned again, snow. Last week, planned again, snow, couldn't get out. So hopefully next Friday, I will get my haircut, But why am I saying all that? Because what are we going to look at? We're going to look at God's sovereignty this morning. (laughs) We're in our series that we call Bible Basics. And why are we in this series? Because the church has failed to teach you things that you should know, but don't. Things every Christian should know, but don't. And where did we start? We started with the Bible. And what did we see? We saw how God's Word and God's presence cannot be separated. Wherever God's word goes, God's presence goes with it. And then we saw how God's word is all about Jesus. Jesus is the character of God and the closeness of God. (laughs) And then last week, we tried to comprehend the incomprehensible triune God, right? And we saw that the essence of God is relationship. Or as C.S. Lewis calls it, the divine dance, where each member of the Trinity is revolving their life around the other for their good. So we have the Father seeking to serve, exalt, honor, and glorify the Son. We have the Son seeking to serve, exalt, and honor the Father. And then we've got the Holy Spirit who's seeking to serve, exalt, honor both the Son and the Father in this divine dance. Or I could say it the way John does in 1 John 4. God is love. Love is the very essence and nature of who God is. Love drives all that God does. And now we come to God's sovereignty and his eternal decrees. Now, when I was in seminary and I met Kristen, me and nine other Dallas Theological Seminary students met with a man by the name of Paul Settle to go through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, Paul was a founding father of our denomination, and he was serving as associate pastor at Park City's Presbyterian Church in Dallas, where I was attending. And (laughs) when we came (laughs) to this section of God's sovereignty and eternal decrees, we spent four weeks on it. Not because it was so long or so difficult, but because I had so many questions that I kept asking him because I had major life decisions that I had to make at this point. Decisions like, is Kristen the one, and how do I know? Questions like, do I remain a coach and teacher, or do I continue to finish seminary and then get ordained and become a pastor? I didn't know what God wanted me to do. And then because I had bad theology at that time, I thought that I could do something that was outside of God's will. Well, after four weeks of putting up with me, (laughs) the Reverend Paul said, finally said, Pete, you can't steer a dock ship. It has to be moving. I'm like, that's a good point. Yeah, okay. But then he's like, so do what you want to do. And if it's what God wants you to do, he'll open the door. If it's not, he'll shut it. So stop being consumed with what God hasn't revealed and trust in what he has. That's the point when we come to God's sovereignty. When it comes to God's sovereignty and his eternal decrees, the question is, who's in control? Is it God? Is it me? Is it my circumstances? Is it fate? Is it luck? Is it chance? Is it Satan? See, when it comes to God's sovereignty, who is in control of the things that not only happen in my life and in those around me, but in control of all things? I'm going to have you stand for the reading of God's word. It's short. We're going to look at Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know, (laughs) really? Think about that. And we know this, he says. So this is instinctive in all of us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I prayed, so we're going to jump in. Here's what I want you to imagine. It is a normal, windy, hot Oklahoma summer day, and you're out driving to do a few errands. And when you get out of the neighborhood and get onto the main road, you notice on the dashboard clock it reads 2 p.m., and then your air conditioner goes out. And because your air conditioner goes out, you roll down the window. And as you roll down the window, a gust of wind blows, and a bee that was collecting nectar on a flower by the side of the road gets caught up in the wind and comes through your window, lands on your shoulder, and you begin to freak out, right? So you try to swat the thing away while driving, but then the bee stings you. And because the bee stings you, it causes your arm to... Move, and so does the steering wheel. So you begin to veer off the road. At the same time, there's a woman who was walking her dog on the sidewalk. And you're heading right towards her and the dog. But immediately at that moment, the dog sees a cat and lunges and pulls the woman five feet to the right. And you slam on the brakes and begin to skid. And... As you are skidding, instead of hitting the light pole head on, you hit it with the right bumper and your car comes to a stop. And as your heart's beating out of your chest, you see the woman looking at you with a look that can only be described as, how did I survive that? How did you not hit me? And then you look at the dashboard clock and it says two oh one. question, is God sovereign over every little detail that happened in that one minute? Was God in control of the air conditioning going out? Was God behind the wind blowing, the bee sting, the dog pulling, you missing the woman, and then having a very big dent on the front bumper of your car? See, how you answer that question is going to reveal a lot about your conception of who you think God is. And I'm going to state up front, what we're going to look at is going to raise a lot of questions and concerns, questions and concerns that there may not be any answers to, questions and concerns that are going to challenge our understanding of God. I could take it a step further, couldn't I, though? It's God sovereign over your cancer diagnosis? It's God sovereign over your rebellious teenager? Is God sovereign over your suffering? Is God sovereign over the political landscape of our country? Is God sovereign over COVID? Is God sovereign over Russia and Ukraine? Is God sovereign over Afghanistan and Haiti? Is God sovereign over your future? What job you'll have, who you will marry, how many kids you have, when you'll retire, and when you die. Is God sovereign over your sin? Is God sovereign over every detail of our lives? Now... As we come to this one, I want to point out again the flow of the confession because there's a lot of good points behind the flow. What did it start with? It started with the Bible. Why? Because that's where God reveals himself. And then it moves on to God. And what did we discover about God? That he's invisible. He's infinite and perfect in his being. He's eternal, he's all-sufficient, he's almighty, he's present everywhere, he's all-knowing, he's immutable, he can't change, he's gracious and merciful, and he's long-suffering. See, all of these revealed things about God come before what? His decrees. Which mean what? The reality of who God is is what drives his decrees see what does the Westminster confession of faith say (laughs) I'm only going to read the first three paragraphs and we are no way going to try to expound on all that is said here but I want you to notice as I read this I want you to make note of how concise and how particular the language is and the wording okay First, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, Nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but it's actually rather established. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions. That's a loaded statement. He doesn't just know one scenario. He knows all possible scenarios that could happen. Yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions? And here's the one we're going to struggle with. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. Yeah, that does not raise any questions, issues, or concerns, does it? Holy cow. So what I want to do is I want to look at just a few of these concerns we might have, okay? And then I want to be able to turn this away from being a lecture into a sermon, okay? So let's start with this. What is the confession affirming? It is affirming that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass from all eternity. (laughs) Which means whatever happens was meant to happen. Whatever happens, God is sovereignly in control of. Which means nothing can happen outside of God's will. Nothing can happen outside of God's knowledge. Nothing can happen outside of God's sovereign control. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Well... If God does not ordain everything that comes to pass, then he's not really sovereign over all things. And if he's not really sovereign over all things, he ceases to be God. There's no other alternative. So, (laughs) for some of us, we may not have a problem with the big things of God being sovereign over those. But what about the little things? The little things in our lives. I mean, is God sovereign over nature, Oklahoma, tornadoes? Is God sovereign over my grades? Is he sovereign over my injuries? (laughs) Is he sovereign over if my sports team wins or loses? Is he sovereign over the air conditioning going out? Is he sovereign over the bee flying into the car? Is he sovereign over the dog pulling its owner out of the way? Is he sovereign over all the little details of our life? Answer, yes. But how do we understand that? Okay? I want you to think of the major life decisions that I had to make. I mean, how in the world did I know if Kristen was the one or not? And how did I know what God wanted me to do? Did he want me to remain a coach and a teacher, or did he want me to get ordained to become a pastor? Well, theologians make a distinction here. There is God's revealed will, which is his word. It's what he's revealed. And then there's his secret will. The things he doesn't reveal, but providentially works out, okay? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. See, nowhere in the Bible does it say in God's revealed will, Pete, Mary Kristen. Well, how did I know That God wanted me to marry Kristen. Answer? Because what came to pass? We're married. (laughs) And now that we're married, I know what God's revealed will is for me in that marriage. I'm to love Christ, or I'm to love her the way Christ loved the church. So there's a difference between his revealed will And his secret will. You see, if God didn't want us to get married, we wouldn't be married. And now that we are, I know what my, what God's revealed will is for me. So, here we go. Why? Why are we so consumed with wanting to know God's secret will? Right? Right? Why does not knowing (laughs) cause us to be frozen with fear where we can't move in a direction or make decisions? Could it be because we have a false view of God and think we can't trust him? Could it be that we don't like not being in control and because we're not in control Do we think we will mess up and make a wrong decision? And that somehow our wrong decision will cause God to be mad at me and not bless me? Not being in control is a scary thing, isn't it? But here's the question. Why is it so hard to trust God when he's in control? could it be that we for some of us think god doesn't have a part of that he's not in control of those things or could it be that we think god's not good that god doesn't have our best interest in mind that god doesn't know what he's doing because we don't like it when our plans <laughs> are different than his plans And then what do we do? We get mad at God, and we think, God, you don't really care because you didn't really give me what I wanted. Now, we need to deal with one of the big ones that comes out of this, what the confession teaches. If God ordains whatever comes to pass, then did he ordain evil in the fall? Does he ordain even your sin? See, the Westminster Assembly, they anticipated this question, right? Because what did they affirm? God's sovereign control over all things. (laughs) So they're anticipating this. That's why they say this. Yet, so as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. Notice what they affirm. God's not the author of sin. He's not. And God does not make us do anything against our will. (laughs) Which means we all do what we want to do. And because of that, we are all responsible for what we do. James 1, 13 through 15 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. So if God is not the author of sin, then in what way is God sovereign over my sin? Answer, he permits and allows it, which raises a question. (laughs) If he knew I would sin and he allows it, why didn't he stop it? Especially when it brings so much harm And hurt to other people. Now this is where we have to be careful. Because the only answer is according to the counsel of his own will. See, nowhere in the Bible do we get the answers to where the origin of evil is from. We don't. We can say it's from Satan. But we don't know how that happened. And we don't know why God allows it. We don't know why God allows evil and sin. But here it is. If God ordains whatsoever comes to pass from the counsel of his own perfect will, then <laughs> he has good reasons for it that we may not know or understand. See, God's decrees, they're never arbitrary. They're never made on a whim. They're never made in reaction to us and what we do his eternal decrees are based on who he is he's infallible he can't make a mistake he's omniscient which means he's all-knowing he's omnipresent he's everywhere all the time he's perfect in his wisdom he's perfect in righteousness he's perfect in his being from all eternity before he even created the world he made his decrees see and here's the thing sometimes god intervenes to stop you from sinning and sometimes he doesn't sometimes god intervenes and stops other people from sinning against you and sometimes he doesn't see david was stopped from sinning when he almost wiped out in the ball and the whole household in 1 samuel 25 but because of abigail Nabal's wife, she mediates, and David realizes this is from the Lord, and he doesn't wipe out Nabal. But then years later, God doesn't stop him from sinning with Bathsheba, and it almost destroys the whole kingdom of Israel. I don't know why God intervenes and stops at times, and why he doesn't at others. But I do know this. If God is not sovereign over all things, then I couldn't find any comfort or any hope that God can make something good out of evil. I could have no comfort or hope that God could make beauty out of what is broken. Don't we see this in the story of Joseph in Genesis, right? His brothers betray him, and they sell him as a slave, and he ends up in Egypt. And then for many years, it looks like God forgets him, and he goes through all this suffering. But then providentially, Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in all the world. And there's a famine that happens in Israel, which forces Joseph's family to come to Egypt to get food. And when they discover who Joseph is, they fear that he's going to exact revenge on them. But what does Joseph say when he sees them? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, God used Joseph's brother's sin to bring about the salvation of Israel through Joseph. And isn't this what our text in Romans 8, 28 is affirming? And we know that for those who love God, all things, not some, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice Paul does not say that everything that happens is good, but that God works all things for the good. So when bad things happen, because God is in control of it, he can and he will bring good out of it. Or as Barbara Duguid says in her book, Extravagant Grace, God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God hates sin, and we are responsible for our sin. But God uses our sin to bring about what he loves, his glory and your good. And this is where we're starting to get to the heart of it now, okay? Why do we really struggle with God's sovereignty? Could it be that God's sovereignty isn't really the problem? But that our struggle is really over the question, is God good? See, when do we question God's goodness? (laughs) Right? When bad things happen. When things don't go our way. When we don't get what we want. What does it do? It causes us to think God doesn't know what he's doing. God's withholding blessing from us, or that he doesn't really care about us. But, holy cow, would you notice something about these responses, though? None of them question God's sovereign control. (laughs) They all question his goodness. Why? Because we intuitively know he's in control. Which leads to the biggest issue that we got to deal with. <laughs> Is God sovereign over our salvation? The Westminster Confession of Faith says, by the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. I prefer what Paul says in Romans 8. Verses 29 through 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You cannot look at this verse without seeing it in the context of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1 begins this, because Paul is assuring Christians of something, that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then in verses 4 through 24, he's going to deal with the reality of the difference between walking according to the flesh and walking according to the Spirit. And he's going to address the reality that we live in this tension Because we live in a fallen, broken world, where all of us are longing, we're groaning for our redemption, because we're weak, and because we struggle to believe in what God says is true, because we struggle to believe that God loves us, because we struggle to believe that we're really his children, and then he says, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And then he says what he says in our text, but don't miss this. What comes next in Romans 8, verses 31 through 35? What shall we say to these things? (laughs) If God is for us, who could be against us? Answer, nobody or nothing. Why? Because he, God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then here we go. He asks these bunch of rhetorical questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, no one. Why? Because it's God who justifies. Who is to give them? Answer, no one. Why? Because Jesus died and was condemned in your place. More than that, he was raised who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one and nothing can. Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? See, we can get caught up in who the elect are. We can get caught up in why does God predestine some to be saved and not all? Or we can see these doctrines in the context of which they were meant to be understood. Which is what? In the context of people who are struggling with whether they're really saved or not. In the context of people who are struggling to believe that God is good. In the context when people are insecure of their standing before God, and because they are, they're fearful that God's love for them will change. It will lessen. When people question their status as God's children, thinking, I can't be a son or daughter because I have very little family resemblance in the way I live when people feel that God is going to punish them and kick them out of the house and say, don't ever come back because I won't let you in. In other words, these doctrines are meant to be a great comfort for people who struggle to believe that God loves them. The doctrines of election and predestination are meant to convince us that God's love for us is an eternal, unchangeable, never-ending love. See, I want you to look at verses 29 through 30. Look at the certainty of all of our salvation from start to finish. It starts with those God foreknew. Now, this doesn't mean that God had, just has a prior knowledge of you. What this means is that God from all eternity set his affection on you before he created the world. You were on his mind and in his heart. To be foreknown by God is to be eternally loved by God. And then what does he say next? Those whom God loved from all eternity, whom he foreknew, they were what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, which means it will happen. (laughs) It must happen. There's nothing that will stop it from happening. Which means whatever happens in your life, God is using it and working it towards your good and his glory. Which means whatever happens in your life, good and bad, God is using to change and transform you more and more into the image of his son. And then those who are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son are called, (laughs) called by name. At a specific point in time, God calls you by name. He sends forth his Holy Spirit who regenerates and gives you new life, which causes you to trust and believe in Jesus. And then what happens when you trust and believe in Jesus? Those who are called, they are what? Justified. They're declared to be right with God. They're declared to be righteous. Why? Because they're covered in Jesus's righteousness And then those who are justified are what? Glorified. From start to finish. How complete and how certain is your salvation? It was decreed by God before he created the world. It was accomplished through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in history. And at a specific point in your life, God called you by name. He sent his spirit to give you new life, and you trusted and believed in Jesus. And the moment you trusted and believed in Jesus, God declared you justified. And those who are justified will be or are glorified, which means what right now, what is God doing Right now, He is sovereignly working all things for His glory and your good by changing and transforming you more and more into the image of His Son. And then one day, one day, you're going to see Him face to face and you will immediately be glorified and transformed into His image. That's God's work, that's God's promise. Until you enter glory. Which means there's nothing in the world that can change that. There's nothing in this world that can stop that from happening. Because there is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We may struggle and have questions and concerns about God's sovereignty over our salvation. We may have struggle and concerns and questions over what does predestination and election mean. But here's what you have to understand. What's the alternative? If God is not sovereign over your salvation, what's the alternative? Then who is? You. You. It's up to you to save yourself. And if it's up to you, then how in the world can you have any certainty or assurance of your salvation? If it's up to you, how in the world can you find any comfort and any rest in God's love? I know this is not easy to accept. I know that we struggle with God's sovereignty and goodness, but I want to end and make this a sermon because I want you to see how unbelievably good this is. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter is speaking to the religious leaders who had Jesus killed. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why could death not hold Jesus? Because he's the only human being who never sinned and didn't deserve it. God is sovereign over all things, including our sin and our salvation, because it was his definite plan from all eternity to use our sin to accomplish the greatest good our salvation. See, the pinnacle of God's ordination of sin is what? It's the betrayal. It's the unjust trial. It's the torture and the crucifixion of the only innocent man. The one who lovingly spoke truth to those in power. The one who warned sinners to repent The one who was tender with broken, tormented people. The one who healed the sick and who raised the dead. The only one who was innocent. Did not deserve to die and be treated with the tremendous evil that he was. Yet God ordained it for our salvation. And by doing so, God is without sin. And he did not cause any of them to sin. They did what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill him. But God used evil to accomplish the ultimate good, which is what? Our salvation. So do you see how comforting and assuring this is now? See, in this broken, fallen, turned upside-down world, God's eternal decrees and sovereignty, it's meant to do what? To ensure you of God's eternal, unchangeable, and never-ending love for you. Even when you don't know what God's doing or why, because God is sovereign, here's what it means. It means your suffering does not have the last word. God will use your suffering for good. Suffering is not in control. It means that my sin does not get the last word. God will use even my sin for my good. Sin is not in control It means when others sin against me, their sin is not the last word. God will use their sin for their good and mine. Their sin is not in control. It means Satan and his dark evil forces do not get the last word. God will use them for our good. The devil is not in control. Does God's sovereignty cause questions and concerns? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And I'll be honest, I struggle with it. But here's the exhortation, because I'm going way long. Take all of your questions and concerns to the one who proves to you he's good. Because in Jesus, don't we see just how good God really is? Because of Jesus, rest in God's eternal, unchangeable, and never-ending love for you. Amen. All right.